Welcome to Who's in STEM. I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the Provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at UVA. Our goal is to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA, the marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. As a kid in the 70s and 80s, I loved baseball, and I saved my allowance for packs of baseball cards, tops baseball cards. There were 14 cards per pack, tightly wrapped in wax paper, and there was a bonus stick of stale pink bubblegum. Now, my friends who also collected the cards, they loved the pictures of the stars like Reggie Jackson and Nolan Ryan. My favorite was switch-hitting Baltimore Oriole Eddie Murray. But for me, what was really the stuff of the cards that I loved, it was the other side. You see, the other side of the cards were populated with numbers, a player's statistics, neatly organized in tables. You could find batting averages, home runs, the number of triples, and I computed averages standard deviations, and yeah, I even made histograms. I did this in elementary school. I loved the numbers. So in my heart, 45 years ago, I knew that I had to somehow make life with numbers, and maybe I was destined to become a statistician. Well, some dreams actually come true, and I'm proud to say that I've recently joined the UVA Department of Statistics as a professor affiliate. Very happy. Today, it is a pleasure to speak with a star UVA statistician, Karen Kafedar, Commonwealth Professor of Statistics and recent chair of the Department of Statistics. She is also a past president of the American Statistical Association. Karen, welcome to Who's in STEM. Thank you, Ken. It's still lovely to be here. Karen, big data, chat GPT, AI, large language models, they're in the air. And also here at UVA, say in the UVA School of Data Science, we will soon be offering undergraduate degrees where students can study things like AI, large language models, so on and so forth. So for clarification, what is the mission of UVA's Department of Statistics to help us keep it all straight? Well, Ken, thank you again for inviting me to be here. You've had some really notable guests, and it's fun to be one of them. So statistics is, as a discipline, has actually been around for centuries. Ancient Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians were creating statistical summaries of one sort or another when they were collecting data. Gauss, Legendre, many others in the 18th and 19th centuries were describing data with models that accounted for unknown sources of variation. So the mission of statistics has always been to make sense of data, develop methods to enable sound, legitimate inferences from data, accounting for sources of uncertainty, things that might cause kind of plus or minus in the results, using mathematically sound methods and models. Mathematics behind the methods and the models assures us that the results of our data analyses, forecasts, and predictions have high probabilities of being correct and relevant to the entire population. Yeah, in my field, I'm originally trained as a, as a number theorist in pure mathematics, and you mentioned Gauss. Some of the foundational work on the distribution of prime numbers are grounded in his attempt to formulate how primes are distributed, right? So in your first statistics class, or even before that, when you flip a coin, the odds are 50-50 that you'll flip a head or you'll flip a tail. 
But if you were to replace that problem by, let's pick a number out of a hat at random. What is the likelihood? What is the probability that that number would be prime? It's a far more difficult problem, but it's the beginning of how probability has informed this entire area of mathematics. So as I mentioned at the outset, I found my love for statistics as a kid thanks to baseball cards. And decades later, statisticians have been taking my fascination with numbers and baseball to a different level. New Heights, famously portrayed in the film Moneyball that starred Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. So statistics, sports analytics and statistics, it's big industry now. Statistics and sports go hand in hand. However, you know, that's just one real world example. Share with us, what are some further real world examples where statisticians are vital. So it is true that I think most people, when they hear statistics, they do think sports. Maybe because of movies like Moneyball or because sports announcers are always talking about game day statistics, numbers of runs, hits, errors, yards rushing, etc. But you're right, statisticians actually do a lot more than that. Some statisticians are, in fact, looking at players' or swimmers' data to try to improve their performance. Certainly, you know a lot about that. Others are designing double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to assess the safety and efficacy of proposed vaccines like those for COVID, RSV, and shingles. Their designs and analyses have saved millions of lives. Or screening for breast cancer. Does low-dose CT scans actually reduce the risk of death over, say, ordinary mammograms? Others work with chemists to design therapies and drugs using statistical design to identify most likely subsets of possible components that are worth investigating as a potential drug. We just had speakers to our department last week. They were talking about using statistics on networks like social media or brain and gene networks using graph theory, detecting weak signals in particle physics reactions, which may lead to the identification of new particles, and hence the theory. Another visitor spoke on developing methods for atmospheric data to estimate the predicted effects of climate change. Another one is developing methods to combine statistical surveys with convenience data, like what you might scrape off the web. So it's everywhere. And, and yeah, um, if you want to predict earthquakes, right, that's, mm-hmm. that's a, a significant a statistical problem. Yeah, it's a significant problem with important distributions that often play a role in other areas of science as they emerge. And one of my favorite distributions, so uh, many listeners will probably know about the normal distribution, the so-called bell curve, but it's not a theorem that all statistical entities are normally distributed. So for me, and, and, and I think most areas of science, the pursuit of the whole subject of how are objects distributed is like the first question you would ask in almost any scientific adventure. Yep. That's right. And in fact, my thesis advisor never called it the normal distribution <laughs> because in his mind, it wasn't really normal. I know. It's the boring distribution. <laughs> yeah. Right. He called right. it the Gaussian distribution oh, okay. because, of course, it sure. was Gauss. But the normal distribution does arise if, for example, in an instrument, when you put in a request to get a measurement, often behind the scenes, it's taking lots of measurements. Mm-hmm. So when you take lots of measurements – the distribution of averages does tend to be right. Gaussian. Right. But that's about the only time. Right. So your personal experience, is, it's fascinating. It ranges from academics to government to industry 
to public policy. I want you to tell us your journey, your path from one step to another as a statistician. Well, if I can go back just a little bit, because I do want to mention we're so close to Washington, D.C., and the federal government hires a lot of statisticians in labor, transportation, NOAA, National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration, at NIST, they're creating standards, and statisticians have to be involved to make sure that the actual amounts of, say, voltage or the weight in those standards is correct so that when they sell them to companies who are making voltage meters and postage scales, you can feel sure that your readings on those scales are correct. We actually had two other famous statisticians who um, answered the problem about the disputed authorship in the Federalist Papers. You remember there were 12 Mm -hmm. papers And based on text analysis, they concluded it was far more likely to be Madison Mm -hmm. than Hamilton. And by the way, we had a statistician just recently do a modern uptake on that. Apparently, there are eight Beatles songs where both McCartney and Lennon recall having written them. (laughs) So he used high-dimensional analyses of high-dimensional statistics because there are a lot of chords, a lot of notes in all those songs that – Known John Lennon songs, known Paul McCartney songs, I think he concluded that John Lennon wrote the eight industry oh. for the most part. There were maybe a couple of segments that Paul threw in, but isn't that interesting? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So turning to your personal story, your journey. Oh, so some people know from the age of three that they want to be an astronomer or mathematician or linguist or historian. Not I. I fell into it because of an introductory probability class taught by the eminent Kai Lai Chung. I was an undergraduate at Stanford. And from that one course, I decided to get a whole master's degree in statistics. I figured I'd just get a job after that. It was practical. But then I got very Can, can I ask, how many women were in that class with you? Were you alone? I don't remember. Okay. Uh, but there certainly were not very many. Right. There were not very many. I mean, a handful or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I got so lucky. He... He asked me, he was writing an intro textbook for probability, and he asked me if I would read through it. Mm. And my older brother gave me probably the best advice I ever got. He said, take this job seriously as if it's one of your courses. And boy, I went through that book with a fine-tooth comb, and it gave me an opportunity to work with him one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. It was a great experience, and that was good advice for my brother. And so then I got this, ma- I signed up for Master's Degree in Statistics, and the advisor for the master's program that year was one Professor Bradley Efron. And he encouraged me as a woman to get a PhD. Not many women in those days were so encouraged. So I really have him to thank for literally changing my life. So then I went to go on for a PhD, and my advisor was John Tukey. He was initially a chemist, turned topologist, turned statistician. He was unique, and both Princeton and Bell Labs realized that they each created a half-time appointment for him at both places. Of course, he basically gave full-time to each, so Tukey was not around very much, and you had to be very independent. But the best part was seeing how all of Tukey's research was motivated in some way by real problems. So it was really fabulous to see how mathematical statistics could make a real impact in this world. So were most of the problems he was motivated by related to the phone company? 
in some way, mm-hmm. usually. But he also was on so many uh, national committees, mm-hmm. you know, for the national academies, that often some problem would come up, and he would be thinking about how to solve it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we didn't know what the problem was mm-hmm. because it were a classified problem. Right. So after I got my PhD, I taught for a year, but frankly, I felt like an imposter because I was talking about designing experiments and analyzing time series when I'd never designed an experiment or analyzed time series in my life. I was teaching out of textbooks. So I decided after a year to get some real-world experience before going back to teaching. So first, I took a job at National Bureau of Standards, now National Institute of Standards and Technology. That place— NIST. Yes, the famous NIST. I got to tell you, that place has so much data and really brilliant scientists. In fact, whenever you hear about the Nobel Prize, more often than not, some of their research was done in collaboration as a visitor at NIST. Um, And whenever there's a really big problem like the collapse of the World Trade Center or the apartment building in Miami, NIST is often sent in a team to investigate, which often includes a statistician. So I really loved it. It was like being a kid in a candy store. But then I got called to California, so I ended up working at Hewlett-Packard. That was incredibly interesting, too. Back then, Hewlett-Packard actually started out as an instruments company. Now it's just computers, but at the time it was instruments. And um, they were producing instruments like power meters and signal generators and decoders. And I helped with the statistical calibration of those instruments so that when they get put on an airplane, they're reading the right frequencies and decoding the right frequencies. So then I heard about an opportunity to work for three years at the National Cancer Institute. And I met more brilliant people like Phil Prorock, with whom I still collaborate. So you cross the country. You move from Monterey. Was it Monterey or Palo Alto? Palo Alto. That's where I went from Washington, D.C., back to Palo Alto, back to Mm D.C. And then by then, I sort of felt like I developed a lot of experience that I could share with students. I mean, I could really say, look, you really need to know this because you're going to get asked this a lot. And... You know, I could contribute to the, I felt I could contribute to the research. Mm-hmm. So certainly not the traditional path for an academic, is it? Usually it would be postdoc or many years of postdoc traveling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a way, I guess you could think of all those experiences, you know, NIST, Hewlett-Packard, NCI. You could sort of think we'll of them, them postdoc. as postdocs. Yeah. By then, 10 to 12 years after my PhD, I felt like I developed a lot of experience in a research program in several areas that was ready to tell others about this exciting field and through research helped to move it myself. So then I went back to academics, Got it. to the university. Ending up ultimately here, ultimately. our good fortune here at the University of Virginia. Your path is very long, so we could do a deeper dive there, but I, I want to touch on some important points that are really quite striking about your history that we haven't yet talked about. This might seem like it comes out of left field. Do you ever watch Hawaii Five O? Maybe CSI Miami. I think I've maybe seen one show. I, I love Hawaii, so I have to tell you, um, Hawaii Five O is one of my favorite. I understand from people who've told me about your work that we could actually probably launch our own show called CSI UVA. What am I talking about? The FBI had started conducting bullet-led analysis after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. When evidence at a crime scene has bullets but no gun. You can't match the striations on the bullet with the striations inside the gun barrel. Hey, by the way, is that really a thing? Oh, yeah. Big thing. It's not an easy process, by the way. And But when there's no gun at all, FBI chemists were measuring the trace element concentrations in the lead inside the bullet cartridge. 
Then they go and search the suspect's house. Hello, Mr. Ono, I see you have a box of bullets in your house. And they would measure the concentrations of those same trace elements, copper, bismuth, antimony, silver, etc. If the seven concentrations matched, according to the FBI's criteria, then the chemist would go into the court and say rather unfounded statements like, these two bullets must have come from the same box. And Mr. Ono, you're going to jail. Oh, that, that would be a nightmare. Why did you say that? No, I, I can't go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> so the FBI was actually quite confident in this process. So they asked the National Academy of Sciences to basically bless it. So with background statistics and chemistry from NIST and production processes at HP, I was asked to be on the committee, even though I didn't know anything about bullets. But it was very easy to see that the FBI's statistical method was pretty ad hoc and had high error rates than the FBI had claimed they had. The appropriate statistical procedure is something called Hotelling's Multivariate Equivalence T-Test. Mm -hmm. That was actually the easy part. But think about it. Bullet lead manufacturers don't make tiny batches of lead for just one box of 50 bullets. They make huge batches of lead, very, very highly processed, so that the chance of the, these bullets at this crime scene matching not just Mr. Ono's bullets, but lots of bullets. In fact, he probably got the same bullets off the same shelf at Mar Walmart that anybody in town did. So, yeah, about the only thing the report pointed out, the only thing they could say is, A, use the right test. And by the way, when you do... The only thing you can say is the bullets at the crime scene came from a batch of bullets that had similar concentrations. So, uh, you know, a defense person is going to say to the chemist on the stand, so how many bullets could that be? And chemists would have to admit thousands. So suddenly it's not very probative, mm -hmm. right? They can't really say those bullets came from Mr. Ono. could be from any box. Is actually turned out to be an. I, I didn't appreciate the point at the time how incredibly important this was. A New mm -hmm. Jersey Court of Appeals overturned a decision that um, was that, solely on the basis mm. of bullet lead evidence. Um, unfortunately, the FBI, by the way, has discontinued the process. But unfortunately, there were some people on death row that did not live mm. to see the outcome of now, it. Now, that was your. Uh, entry to the whole field of forensic, forensic statistics. That's right. Yeah, so tell us about some of your other work. So you can imagine now bullets. all of a sudden, yeah. you know, the forensic scientists are saying, holy smokes, if the FBI's prize procedure is in question, what about fingerprints? What about handwriting analysis? What about bite marks? Hair. Hair analysis. Right. I testified in a case involving hair analysis too. Um, Can you help me get my hair back? <laughs> Unfortunately, what we would be able to, <laughs> we wouldn't <laughs> be able to say for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so NES convened another committee, and that was a blockbuster report. The report was incredibly well written. It has really stood the test of time. And it basically said no forensic method other than nuclear DNA mm -hmm. has the ability to uniquely match evidence with source. And they include fingerprints. That includes fingerprints. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. So 10 years later, not much had changed. And I was invited to testify in a congressional hearing that we still need money for research in forensic science and to give a more statistical foundation 
to some of these methods. So you couldn't blame the FBI for trying to come up with a statistical foundation. It's just the whole process. Well, they're trying to solve crimes, right? That's right. right. So um, happily, Congress did authorize funding to NIST, first to organize committees on standards for forensic analyses, and second for a center of excellence in forensic science. And it was awarded to statisticians at Iowa State with UVA, Carnegie Mellon, and UC Irvine as partners, and now Duke Law and West Virginia Criminal Justice Department. So our research is aiming to put a solid foundation on analysis of forensic procedures, one of which, by the way, is that ballistics matching I just mentioned mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. striations on a bullet and a gun. And we really sincerely are hoping that we'll reduce the number of wrongful convictions in our criminal justice system and identify the correct perpetrator. Well, that's that's really important work. Um for students here that are studying in the stat department, if someone wants to get involved, what, Almost, what can you they Almost. You know, one thing that's kind of unique about our department, I think, is that all of the um, our colleagues are actually interested in real applications. Mm-hmm. You know, designing statistical methods that are going to be used on real problems. Mm-hmm. So we've got some colleagues working with kinesiologists, mm-hmm. some working in personal medicine, mm-hmm. others working in images. And AI, right? And AI, that's that came right. Out recently, yeah. Yep, right. that's right. So they're just, you know, I think that's what I'm excited about with our department is that this statisticians there, they'll hear about a problem, they'll immediately start thinking, how can we put a statistical framework for this? Right, right. Well, speaking of that, um, we first met when uh, you were chair of the Department of Statistics and I was chair of mathematics. And from an administrative perspective, could you reflect on uh, your time as chair of the department? Well, I never really expected that I would ever be in administration. But at the time I accepted the offer, UVA was um, – I, I had five colleagues. So it was a very small department. And hardly. Oh, you you came here. You were hired by UVA to be, to be the, the chair department of the Department chair. of Statistics. And the reason I did is because I sensed real, genuine administrative support for building the department, starting with the late and very great John Hawley, is the science associate dean. Did you know him? Were you John? John and Ian hired me. John was an amazing, wonderful. Yeah, he was a distinguished astronomer. Man. He won the Shaw Prize. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. He was computational physicist. Right. So uh, astrophysicist, so he really understood the power of statistics. Um, provost that time was John Simon. He was a chemist, but he'd been on the board of trustees for one of NSF-funded statistics institutes in North Carolina. So he was a convert. And the most pleasant surprise for me was President Sullivan. She'd actually taken several statistics classes during her PhD at University of Chicago and studied two of the books written by my advisor. Mm. Now, I'd never met a university president, even knew what statistics was, much less had studied it. So about two months before I arrived in August 2014, our department awarded diplomas to 40 undergraduates. And about a month after... um, I arrived about a month after Ian Balcom arrived. Now, Ian didn't know anything about statistics either, but this is important. He made an effort to learn. He really did, and he supported our plans for department growth. And in the year that my chair term ended, we graduated 260 majors, mm. and I had 15 colleagues. So under my successor, I now have 18. 
It was a risk, but I'm really glad I took it. We've got students involved in brain imaging, forensic science, reliability of eyewitness identification, clinical trial design, mentioned kinesiology, and uh, one is actually starting to work with Scott Doney. Uh, I know he was one of your previous guests. Oh, no, he will soon be a guest. Oh, okay. So for listeners who don't know, you get to look forward to uh, a future episode. Scott was the former director of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He uh, is an endowed chair in environmental sciences here at UVA. UVA is the first major university to have a department of environmental science. And he recently rotated off his term as deputy director of ocean science in the White House. So, yeah, I, I, I love hearing about... Uh, this collaboration between statistics and one of our most decorated scientists. And Scott, well, Karen, that's great. We've had several conversations about AI, artificial intelligence here on Who's in STEM, uh, most recently during our episode on the UVA Futures Initiative. So question for you, how can statistics play a role in this modern movement, the movement of AI in the future of education? So statisticians actually are getting very involved with AI. Um, Traditionally, I would say statisticians have focused on prediction through estimation of model parameters, developing models, and through what my former advisor, Brad Efron, likes to call attribution. Are those parameters meaningful to the model? Are they just spurious? You know, for example, in a model of the space shuttle's O-rings, was temperature a significant effect on reliability? AI's focus tends to be on prediction, mainly. If it predicts well, who cares why it predicts well? But the problem is that often AI algorithms are developed on a specific data set, and if you change the data set or add more data to it, the algorithm may not always be as accurate, so then the algorithm gets modified. But on an entirely new data set, it may be inaccurate, and without estimation and attribution, some way of knowing what effects in the model are actually important, no one really knows why. So that can be a serious drawback, and we like we basically like to know why our approaches work or don't work. So statisticians are now developing approaches that lead to accurate predictions, even if the models aren't simple, but still explain they're explainable and mathematically sound. So if you apply the algorithm to a similar, though not exactly the same, data set, you feel confident that your predictions will be well within, say, 5% of what you predicted them to be. I I concur and agree completely. You know, while I'm sitting here thinking about our conversation, I think there's a very important question that I need to formulate. Uh, We live at a time where the public is increasingly distrustful of science. Yep. For example, statistics. Yep. Uh, and that's frustrating for all of us. What advice can you offer the listener to help them when they interpret information or predictions based on statistics? So I think that um, you know some organizations are getting better at this, at communicating the uncertainty in the reported results. But that's Years only ago, some. You know, media is really very bad at this. That's correct. And uh, one place where actually it's done pretty well, and I haven't looked in a long time, but Gina Collada was a science writer for the New York Times. And whenever the, there was a result of a poll mentioned, you knew she had to have written this little box on the side that mm-hmm. said, this is the interpretation of you know plus or minus three percentage mm-hmm. points. And it's dead on. She got it right. Um, I don't think most people understand the plus or minus 
You know, they don't understand that something works well here. It may or may not work there. Mm -hmm. Or even on yourself. Maybe it worked before, but it doesn't work now. So I think it's important when people see a number, you know, to ask questions like, what was the plus or minus on it? And more importantly, on what data was the number reported? So there was an article in Nature not too long ago about the uptake of COVID vaccine. And this article pointed out that you would think with 2.3 million responses on Facebook about whether or not they got COVID vaccine would be pretty accurate. But Facebook used this. I'm not one of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't know if you are, but I'm not. So it's a pretty biased population. So alternatively, the CDC has a bit more accurate data and way fewer records, like hundreds of thousands maybe, not millions. Mm -hmm. And the two estimates don't square at all mm -hmm. because Facebook users are not representative of the whole population. So that's another important thing to look for on which folks was, you know, which population was this estimated? I have two more questions, Karen. One, what are you working on now? Oh, um, so it's actually pretty fun. I'm using data from National Cancer Institute to assess the risks and benefits of our undergoing cancer screening tests. So is, for example, low-dose CT screening scan. They're doing this trial right now. Will you live longer than simple mammograms? So they've got two arms of the trial. Mm -hmm. um, another trial, it's not being run here, but it's, um, there are other sites that are running this trial, is flexible sigmoidoscopy as effective as the full-blown colonoscopy. I'm sorry, the flexible what? The flexible sigmoidoscopy tends to study only the distal third of the colon. Colonoscopy, of course, you have to be knocked out. You're in the hospital yeah. overnight and everything else. For all we know, there's you don't find many polyps in the other two-thirds of the colon. So they're doing studies right now where, again, they'll randomize you. Now, those can't be double-blind, right? right. I mean, you know which one you're getting. Right. But at least it's a similar population in that what they'll do is they'll say, Mr. Ono, are you willing to participate in this trial? Yeah. That, and then they'll flip the coin. a little bit awkward for me. I, I don't want to yeah. say <laughs> <laughs> Well, you may not want to, but this is why you don't have results that – compare those who got screened right. with those who don't get screened right. because there may be reasons right. why people don't want to get screened. Absolutely. So that's one thing. Um, the other is I'm looking at statistical models for the latent fingerprint process, various mm -hmm. aspects of it. How does the quality of the print affect the reliability of the response of the identification or exclusion of it? Correct um, identification or exclusion of it. And then third, I'm also looking at, this is another interesting project that came to me from an MD, and she's using, she's trying to decide which lymphoma patients might benefit from stem cell transplants without developing graft versus host disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't want to put somebody through that whole yeah. stem cell process if they're going to reject the right. cells. So what are the characteristics of mm -hmm. some of the patients mm -hmm. that might end up developing a severe form of it? Mm. So last question. Mm -hmm. For students interested in statistics at UVA, your advice? Yeah. Talk, first of all, take an intro stat class. <laughs> Learn about R. Oh, <laughs> and oh. I think you'll have a better appreciation for what you were talking about earlier. When you see a number, how much do you rely on it? And what are the things you look for? Um, and then talk to any of our professors. We've got professors working on frameworks for artificial intelligence, people working in personalized medicine, 
uh, sample surveys, data in space and time, more theoretical things like random matrices. We love to talk to students and get them involved in advancing research and statistics. Well, great. Karen, your scientific contributions, your impactful journey and dedication to UVA statistics, it's all very inspiring. And bringing statistical literacy to the forefront in public policy and through conversations like this, it aligns perfectly with President Ryan's vision for UVA to be great and good in all that we do. So thank you, Karen. I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and Marvin Rosenblum, professor of mathematics. And you've been listening to Who's in STEM. Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the Provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Katherine Kossaboom, Claire Curzan, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Ariane Ballou. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples and Stereo. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific technological innovation at the University of Virginia. Thank you.